just because we can't fix this, just because we can't avoid uh, a lot of hardships to come, doesn't mean that we can't somehow redirect some of this to minimize pain and suffering, to bring more beauty into the world. Welcome to Nice Work, a podcast of the Super Nice Club, where our mission is simple, to make the world 10% nicer. I'm your host, Todd Brilliant, and today we'll be talking to my good friend, Asher Miller. Asher is the executive director of nonprofit think tank, Post Carbon Institute, PCI, and uh, Asher and PCI are, are quite literally working on a goal that is no less ambitious than saving the world, saving the world for you, for me. Uh, but mostly for our children and our children's children and and the rest of the living creatures and the not living creatures, rocks, rocks. Um, a lot of people, some people, a few people. I talked to a person once who thought that rocks were living. I mean, in as much as rocks are part of like the swirling cosmic void of energy that inhabits all particles. Um I think this person was from Sedona or Sebastopol. But anyway, they had a point, right? So Asher is trying to save the rocks. And we also get into Holocaust survivors. We make fun of Thomas Friedman a little bit. Um, and my good friend Rex Tillerson. Robot jockeys. It's a real thing. Shock doctrine in the time of global pandemic. The end of the Netherlands. Yeah, it's, it's pretty wide ranging. I think you're going to really like it. I really do. You ready? You ready for this? You're ready. You're totally ready. Okay, cool. Here we go. Hey, Asher. Good morning. Really great to have you on here. What is going on? Oh, man. I, it's, my life is so exciting. I moved from one room to the other in my house. It's, uh, it's like a whirlwind. It's, oh, it's you incredible. Did. That's Sometimes great. I go outside. You yeah, know, things, are, um, things, are, things are different, aren't they? They are different. I, you know, it's, it's interesting. Those of us who make podcasts, you sort of like wonder how, you know, the shelf life of a, of a podcast, if you're talking about coronavirus stuff, like will people in two years think back and listen to stuff and think, well, why are they talking about that so much? I'm not, not worried about anybody ever listening to my podcast. Oh, cool. Now. Yeah, no I mean, problem. if we get them doing it now, that's a win. Um, you don't sound very Dutch. It says I, you were born in the Netherlands. I worked sound... hard on it. Yeah, I still wear wooden shoes. It's a good thing that we're not um, recording with me walking around because you'd really pick up that echo. Um, huh. But you were yeah. born there, right? I bet, you're, I bet you're glad to get out of the Netherlands. Actually, I love the Netherlands. I wouldn't want to be there right now, honestly. Um, yeah, it's going to be underwater in like three years, right? It's well, just like there's, there's that issue. But one ice sheet away from doom. Right now, it's a very dense population, you know, and so... Um, my mother, who actually lives in the U.S. part-time and in Amsterdam part-time, she was trying to figure out like where she'd be better off. Healthcare there is better than here, but shocker, the proximity of people and the likelihood of catching stuff is higher. Just ha harder to get away from people, you know what I mean? Um, and have dis social distancing. Yeah, they seem like they were a little bit, a little bit late to the. Um, hey, we need to take this seriously. Game as well. 
We were so, in the U.S., we we're so early. I mean, it's incredible how well we responded, don't you think? And um, <laughs> so well, in fact, that, that we are basically by Easter time, we're just going to... We're going to be open by Easter. Yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm pretty. We're going to rise from the dead, like yeah. like Jesus Christ. In the meantime, the Dutch, the Dutch are going to be just getting started on this and uh, looking to us for guidance as usual. Of course, the yeah. Dutch in every other country. Do you think Dutch is a real language? I mean, it sounds pretty much like a mashup between like Sweden and German or something. To the Dutch, if you're listening, former American colony, we appreciate you. You know, it's we really not do. An American colony. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it's an in-house joke. Um, if you're Danish but, or Dutch or whatever, Danish and Dutch are the same thing. Yeah, they are the same thing. Yeah. yeah. But hey, you guys invented the windmill. We're totally grateful for that. Yeah, it's coming back big in a big, big way. Did you know the Dutch also invented the fork? Did they? Yeah, pretty sure. They call it the fork. Yeah, pretty sure fork. they did. Yeah. Maybe it was the Serbs. I don't know. It was, Anyhow. I think back when it was like 1830 or something. I think that's when the fork came around. The knife was lonely for a long time. The spoon, really there's spoon. <laughs> Anyhow, so you've been the executive director of Post Carbon Institute, PCI. Um, in my opinion, you know, definitely one of the world's most important think tanks since, since when? The mid-2000s? No, later than that. You're biased. Um, I'm totally biased. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I've been with PCI since 2008. It's, oh, okay. uh, March is actually my anniversary date um, oh so i started really? i did not see that on linkedin i know i you know i'm sorry that you didn't congratulate me for my anniversary and it would have meant a lot to me sorry i'm doing it now congratulations <laughs> for your anniversary <laughs> no you're not supposed to do it actually when you're talking to people you, oh. you only just send these do it on linkedin i can do that right now do you can just media. type it in right now <laughs> yeah. um so 12 years of post-carbon institute what is what does pci do uh exactly does it do um, anything do you guys do anything we don't really do much. No, no. We, uh, as you mentioned, we're a think tank. Although that's such such a pretentious phrase. We we do it, sure. yeah, I know, and and that's why I enjoy it. Indubitably, but we we try to help people understand the um, the the threats that we face and and think more systemically about about the challenges that that we're dealing with. You know, here we are. We're 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 joking about the pandemic, but the pandemic. We don't know how this is all going to play out, but it's been interesting because it, in, in some ways it's a manifestation of these deeper, more like systemic risks that we face that the PCI talks a lot about climate change, globalization, our dependence on, you know, depleting non-renewable resources, you know, the fact that we have economies that really need to keep growing all the time or else uh, like a shark, they're just going to die, you know? Um, and just, a huge explosion in human population with people consuming more and more resources on a planet that is not getting bigger. Um, and then all the kind of inequities that, that come along with that explosion in, in consumption and, and uh, really this kind of extractive cons consumer corporate based capitalist economy. Um, the pandemic is its own thing, but in a lot of ways, it's an expression of these issues. Like how we're experiencing it is very much connected to those other issues that, that we're facing. So we've spent, you know, the last dozen years longer, actually, because PCI you know, was, was started in 2003. Um, so, you know, much longer. Uh, trying to help kind of wake up humanity to these issues that we're facing. 
and and think about the kinds of proper responses. A lot of our work is in some ways debunking um, inadequate solutions. So, for example, uh, we're really really supportive or definitely on board with the need to transition to renewable energy uh, as an alternative to fossil fuels because you know our use of fossil fuels is setting us on this really dangerous, dangerous path with climate change. But it's also, even if that wasn't the reality, you know, these are resources that are non-renewable and we are consuming more and more of them every year. Uh, they're depleting once we, once we burn those hydrocarbons, we don't get them back. Um, and we've gotten to a place now where we're having to frack and drill in deep water oceans, and, you know, tar sands and all these extreme forms of, of energy because we already picked the low hanging fruit. Um, so, you know, we're, we definitely recognize the need to transition to renewables and are supportive of doing that as quickly as possible. But when you recognize that, like, these are systemic issues that we're facing, it's not just an issue of transitioning from, you know, unplugging coal fire power plant and plugging in a big solar array or something like that. Um, we, that's not going to solve the problems that we're in, you know? And so there's a lot of like, I would call them sort of superficial solutions out there. People saying we all should just become vegans, you know, or we just need to have renewables and, you know, stop fossil, uh, subsidizing fossil fuels. Those are parts of the response, but they're not the total solution. So we're trying to help people think more broadly about that. And we also really talk a lot about the, the need to build resilience in our communities because we're not going to be able to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, and again, this pandemic is really showing us the vulnerability that we have and the fact that we also have to work you know, collaboratively to get through these things. You know, we're all isolating ourselves, not just because of the risk that we might be facing if we go out, but the fact that we could be spreading it to other people who are more vulnerable. And right. that's really key for, for all the issues that we're dealing with. We have to think about community-based cooperative solutions. So that's great. What my real takeaway here and what you just said is that you are, you know, anti-capitalism, anti-vegan yes. and against solar power. With you it, got is, it. That, is that right? That's, a, that's the that's three what pillars. Your work is? Okay. Those are the three pillars of our platform. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. do you feel like you lose some people with that approach? We lose a lot of people <laughs> with that approach. You know this because we work together, right? We did. So, we, we did work together for yeah. a minute. Yeah. Yeah. For, for part of, five years. Part of what you were work, you know, working on and helping us with was trying to figure out how to, how to message this stuff because... We have like all these things that work against us, right? We, we have a, a message that has been, you know, uh, pretty, pretty much a downer message, right? Right? Like, uh, it's, uh, it's sobering stuff, you know, and people don't want to hear that crap, right? So that's, right. that's a challenge. It is complicated and complex and people don't like that. They want, you know, simple solutions. They want a simple problem statement. You know, uh, they don't want to have to get a PhD to try to figure this, this stuff out, you know. Um, and we're not offering a lot of what we talk about is the fact that I, I know I've been using the word solution, but we actually we talk about the need to have responses, not solutions, because the idea of having a solution is you identify a problem, you figure out how you solve it, you do that thing, and then you go back to what you're doing before or whatever it is, you know, problem solved, it's over. 
And what we're actually grappling with here are, you know, uh, predicaments, things that we can't solve that we're going to have to figure out how to respond to and we have to adjust all the time because we don't know how all this stuff is going to play out. You know, if we've been on this path for a couple of centuries, you know, and it's in some ways going to unravel or decomplexify, it's not going to happen overnight. At least we hope it doesn't happen overnight, you know, so there's going to be lots of different shifts and things that we can't expect, you know, um, and so that's hard for people to, you know, wrap their heads around, you know, and yeah, it's it a is. certainly a hard message to like go out and champion, you know, saying that we need to stop growing the economy is not something you're going to see a politician running, you know, their campaign on anytime soon. And nobody wants to hear that, you know, nobody wants to hear that, that we may have to fundamentally reanalyze our, um, you know, not only our priorities, but our value systems, right? And it's hard to separate economy because that feels like you're talking about my job you're talking about my savings my mortgage things like that and it's just a knee-jerk reaction against that kind of change you know i think it's an interesting opportunity now to take a look back at the work that you've done with with the not to make light of the coronavirus but just as a very lightweight test of our resilience right of our community resilience and we're seeing that we aren't very resilient. At least I'm just talking about here in the United States. Yeah. Can't speak to other nations. And so what kind of um, you and senior fellow Richard Heinberg, um, anybody listening to this, I really highly recommend Googling Richard Heinberg, um, checking out any of his books. Um, but what, what kind of are your big takeaways so far? From the, the pandemic? From the, the early days of the pandemic that we're in right now. Yeah. Um, the we should have seen this coming. <laughs> you know, we've been warned. We've got lots of people who, uh, who've been warning us about the risk of pandemic for a long time. We have that true, uh, very much true with kind of the larger sustainability crisis that we face. You know, we, we at PCI talk a lot about, a, you know, a, a, a study and book that was published in 1972, the year I was born, right? Almost 50 years ago. Mm. that warned about a lot of the things that we're seeing now, you know, so we, we've got plenty of warning, you know, um, and we, and what book was that? It's called the limits to growth. Of course. And we, um, and so we don't need to spend a lot of time trying to, you know, analyze the, the challenges that we face. What we have to do is, is figure out how to actually act, on on the warnings that we've gotten and and what i find is really interesting about the pandemic here is that it is this great it could be and it, this is going to sound very cavalier on my part but it could be a great learning opportunity for us if we seize the moment in the sense that absolutely we don't know how bad it's going to get right so we've talked a little bit about like hey is there, is this a goldilocks crisis moment in the sense that we've had other crises um, I don't know if you remember this, but do you remember the deep water, when the deep water horizon, you know, d uh, disaster happened, you know, mm -hmm. in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, there were a lot of people in the environmental community who saw that as like this pivotal sea change moment. This is the moment that everyone's going to get it. They're going to realize that like us, you know, burning fossil fuels and our dependence on them is just, you know, out of control and we got to, we got to switch over. And there were groups who are like, we're going to completely reorganize and reorient around this, this moment. And that moment was, 
it was an important moment, but it was not the sea change moment. We saw that with Occupy Wall Street too, right? Like mm -hmm. being caught up in it for the folks that were, they saw that like, oh my God, this is the moment that, um, that changes everything. And it didn't, it changed some things, you mm -hmm. know, uh, it, it definitely shifted the current a little bit, but it didn't dam it up, didn't completely redirect, you know, the, the stream in a totally new direction. Um, so we've had lots of moments that have been lost wake up calls. And then there are other ones, frankly, that are so severe that you can't, in a sense, pick yourself up from them. And my sort of hope with this one is not that I'm hoping for loss of life, you know, I don't want all the hardship that's going to come with what could be Great Depression level economic contraction and hardship, you know. Um, but I think in the in the long run, if we could say, okay, this is a this is a real wake up call for us that what we've been doing is not working and that we have to shift significantly. And, and there are things in this moment that are actually really positive ones. You know, I mean, what you're, you know, um, you know, super nice club. It's like, is all about making the world a better place, you know, and, and, and focusing on the things that we could do that are maybe not, uh, the big shift, you know, well, we can't snap our fingers and completely change the trajectory on, but there are lots of small things that we can do. And in moments like this provide lots of opportunity for that. And I think that we've been told, Hey, all you need to be happy and to be a good citizen is to buy a bunch of shit and consume stuff. You know what I mean? And, and go on your merry way and, and being a patriot and being a good citizen is being a good consumer. And I think this is, reorienting that a bit to realize what really matters to us, right? And that self safety and health and well-being of everybody and community connection, being all isolated like this is, is showing us how important it is to be connected to, to each other and, and the outdoors. Right. I agree. And well, now they're shutting down the trails, so it's kind of hard to get outdoors. Um, I know. But you know, it, it is, it really reminds me, you just said that about the, uh, how we shop after 9-11. You remember how quickly the yeah. shopping bags came out, you know, shop our way back to um, American happiness. And now we already have the same call. Like, you know, we've got to get business open as soon as possible, which isn't to dismiss all of the people that are hurting financially because of this, including myself. I lost work. Um, fortunately, I have a lot of sponsors um, on the Super Nice Club. Yeah. Uh, nice Work Podcast says, you know, let's take a break and thank those sponsors. <clears throat> I'd like to thank... Uh, the members of the Super Nice Club, the members of the Super Nice Club, with your support, with your just membership, you know, being part of our online and real world events by visiting the Super Nice Club website, checking out the Super Nice Club swag. That's what makes this podcast possible. So super grateful for all of you for being part of this, for growing this, for telling your friends about the Super Nice Club. Thank you very much, sponsors. And ExxonMobil is one of your member, uh, Exxon right? Ralph Tillerson when he was there it was actually Ralph Tillerson's uh, was it Ralph Rex Rex Tillerson Rex, yeah, Rex super nice club is actually Rex Tillerson's idea I stole it from him um, oh it was when you guys were having drinks one night right we were having drinks in Dubai um, watching robot camels uh, robot jockey races as as all of us do yeah robot 
jockey horse races are a real thing, people. I'm not making this up. Google it. It's did you go to ski Dubai while you were out there? You know, they <laughs> did not. That. No, Rex's knee was uh, Rex's knee was blown acting up. up yeah. yeah. So anyway, thanks, Rex. Really appreciate you a lot for starting the super nice club as my silent partner and uh, for all the great work you did at ExxonMobil, uh, protecting the environment, you know, making reefs out of oil drums. Genius idea. Totally. Yeah. And, and helping to bleach all, all the coral, you know, it's just too many colors. You know, it was, it it was, was a little 80s. It was hard for shipping. You know? Yeah, it was a little 80s. Definitely the coral colors were, you know, white is forever. White is back. Yeah. Wow, that sounds awful. And we're just going <laughs> to skip right on that into the work that you did for Steven Spielberg's Shoah Foundation. Oh, sure. Because <laughs> now we're going into even lighter territory. That's yeah. great. <laughs> You at the Shoah Foundation, you, I'm trying to remember this from our conversations years ago, but you went around interviewing Holocaust survivors. Is that right? Or you're participating in that? Yeah. The, so I didn't personally go around. Mm -hmm. okay? So the way we did it. Um, well, that sucks the pathos out of the rest of this, but okay, keep going. Um, here's the, here's the, the, the short story, right? So Spielberg was made Schindler's List, right? Um, mm -hmm. It was a film about, you know, uh, uh, a man who wound up saving the lives of, of over a thousand Jews during right. the Holocaust. That was Lenny Bruce, right? It was Lenny Bruce. Right. Uh, um, little known uh, fact about Lenny. Um, and, uh, and then when he was doing that, he actually was having a lot of Holocaust survivors reaching out to him. You know, you should tell my story. You should tell my story. And he was telling folks, why don't you sit down and record it and send it to me? So literally, I'm not making this up. You know, you had these, these, uh, these old Holocaust survivors sitting down in their living rooms, you know, getting their children to try to set up cameras, the cameras pointing, you know, at the wall, you know, 45 degree angle away from them. You know, you can't hear them. You know, it's just mm -hmm. terrible. And he's like, right. you know what, we got to just record these testimonies ourselves. So started this project. We grew it to the place just in a, in a few years where we were doing over 600 interviews around the world in a week. Um, wow. We, we did over 50,000 interviews all told uh, in over 50 countries, um, many, 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 many dozens of languages. Uh, this was in the day. It's, it's, it's amazing how technology has changed. So when we were doing this, and this was mid-90s when I was there um, a long time ago, you know, we were doing it on digital video, but it, all we had at that time was beta cameras. So we had professional videographers who would volunteer their time or get a very small stipend, volunteer interviewers going to the homes of Holocaust survivors and um, setting these things up and recording them. And then they would ship the video cassettes back to our headquarters and we would digitize them. And then we would turn it into a VHS tape and send it back to the Holocaust survivor. And then the, the, this is again, before we had all this technology, we in some ways invented a lot of keyword uh, searching and uh, keyword tagging of, of content. So we would have people who watch these testimonies and attach keywords to segments of the interviews that we had done. So somebody could go into the repository and the repository exists now online. Researchers use it and they use it as an educational tool. You can go in and search for things. So you could search for Auschwitz or you could search for a date and you could pull up, you know, every interview that was done that talked about that thing right to the, that moment in their interview. So from the standpoint of understanding history, instead of saying, okay, I'm gonna read this book about this, this event that happened on this date, 
you know, when, when the Nazis took over Athens, you know, I'm going to search and I'm going to hear it directly from people who experienced it. I'm going to get 20 people talking about this thing. So just, it was an amazing, amazing experience in a lot of ways for me personally yeah. and for the people that participated in it. It was very exciting, you know, to be part of it and also very stressful and, you know, heavy emotional toll and, but That's what I was going to ask you, you know, how heavy was it to get these stories relayed to you? And I mean, do you still carry some of them with you? Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. I mean, some amazing stories. I mean, right. the things that, that stick with me the most are actually the ones that are just about the, the human spirit, you know, the ways that people over, overcame things, the crazy, serendipitous, weird, almost, you know, makes you want to believe in God things that people, mm -hmm. you know, experience. Those are the ones that kind of stick with me more than the, just the really, you know, awful, dark, dark stuff. So you're a godless anti-capitalist is what I'm hearing. I am. Right? I am a okay. godless anti-capitalist. Uh, I want to yes. go back real quick though. You're not necessarily anti-capitalist. There are other versions of a capitalist economy that can tell ecological truths. I mean, and they're out there, these models, right? Yeah. No, I'm not. And we we're joking about being anti-capitalist. Yeah, I just wanted to be I'm, clear. I, I, would, I would say it's fair to say that I'm anti-growth. You know, mm -hmm. um, I'm... Well, I love the line. It's, the, what is it? The impossible hamster? Oh, I got a link to the impossible hamster. You guys check out the impossible hamster. But the idea that, that infinite growth is, is possible on a, on a finite planet. I, I probably say that line once a day. Um, yeah, it's, um, but it's so, it's so ubiquitous, that concept that we don't even recognize it, right? It's just mm -hmm. taken for granted. The concept you know? of infinite growth being something that we will just sort of invent our way into, you mean? Yeah, that we, that, that things grow and they should keep growing. The economy needs to keep growing. We need to con continue to grow consumer demand for things like everything should grow. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, it's been fascinating with the pandemic too, because I feel like people are getting, you know, this whole flattening the curve thing and people sharing these charts, these visualizations of the exponential growth curve, you know, that, mm -hmm. and in climate circles, people talked about the hockey stick graph, yeah, you know, right. um, where it's kind of looks like it's flat and all of a sudden it just goes off, right? That's the exponential growth curve. And we're seeing that with the spread of. Oh, I remember Al Gore disease. invented that, right? Yeah. Al Gore, Al Gore invented climate change, I think. He, he did just to get famous. He really, really wanted um, to make a movie and he couldn't figure out another idea. So he That's actually not true. Change. I mean, come on, let's be real. It was Rex Tillerson. Sorry. Rex Tillerson had the idea for um, Al's movie. It's why we were, he was, I was, we were all at the robot jockey thing in Dubai. You were the there with Al? Well, Al was there with me. Right. Yeah. Sure. And with Rex. Anyway, yeah. so back to um, the story. So back to, back to this whole growth thing. So, you know, um, you know, people are starting to understand compound growth and exponential growth. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but that's, that's exactly how our economy, uh, everything, if you actually track this, um, you know, you look at, at things like, you know, use of, of technology, uh, you know, population, energy demand, you know, a list of things, they've all followed this, um, this, this hockey stick kind of compound growth trajectory. And that's just unsustainable. I mean, th those things crash at some point, right? In the case of the pandemic, we want it to crash. We don't want it to go up that way. 
But mm-hmm. to think that we're going to continue to grow the way that we have is, is absolutely absurd. And, um, but we just take it for granted. And in fact, all our systems are, are based on that. So I am a huge uh, skeptic of, of growth and, and an economic system built on that. Uh, and I would say capitalism as we know it, I'm, I'm anti-capitalism from that standpoint. It's, it turns up people, it turns up, you know, uh, ecosystems, other species. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, ju- it's all oriented around extraction and consumption and it profits few at the cost of the many. And, that, and by many, I mean not just the vast you know, proportion of humans, but other species and future generations, which we also tend not to think about. So you, along with being godless, anti-vegan, anti-capitalist, there was something else in there. Um, I think it sounds like, you know, I'm sorry, I have to, this is an old joke. Sorry, everybody. But can we talk about, would it not be super nice to talk about Thomas Friedman? Remember how he was the butt of every third joke in the office at, at Post Carbon Institute? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that guy, I don't know if you guys know who Thomas Friedman is. He's this kind of clownish New York Times writer. He's won a bunch of Pulitzers, but he's, he's an utter nutter. Right. Was that fair to say? I think there are much more nutty people, but all you need to know about Thomas Friedman is look at his headshot photo at the New York Times. You know, it's him kind of like leaning his chin on his hands. He's the the poster boy for for forever growth and everything will always be awesome. Well, in a sense of every once in a while, he'll because he's he's buddies with uh, with actually a guy who's a a fellow at Post Carbon Institute, Paul Gilding. Um, every once in a while, every three or five, five years, he has a conversation with Paul and he's like, Oh shit, maybe there are limits. And then he'll write a piece about that. And then he'll just go back to this idea like, Oh, we'll just innovate our way, you know, out of this and we can't not grow, you know, so we're going to figure it out. But you want a poster child. The, the best thing I've seen in a long time, uh, it's, it's an amazing expression of human, uh, humanity's ability to kind of compartmentalize and uh, have cognitive dissonance. Watch Jeff Bezos's <laughs> announcement of when he launched his space company, right? So he did this big and don't look for just clips. You know, get the actual footage from his, from his presentation that he did. Uh, you can get it on YouTube. He spends the first 10 minutes talking about, sort of where we are as humanity. He, he talks about, he basically is channeling, channeling the things that like folks like Post Carbon Institute, Al Bartley, who you know, mm-hmm. uh, Todd and others should also look up. Um, and in others that, that we kind of, we have hung, hung around with for a long time. He's like channeling us. He's, he's talking about the trajectory that we've been on, how much dependent on energy, how much, energy we consume um, as modern humans than, you know, through kind of uh, exosomatic, not the stuff that we consume directly into our bodies to keep us, you know, right, the calories we consume that way, but all the calories of energy that we consume to power our lights and the computers and our cars and and the food system and everything else, right? And he, he basically has talked about that, you know, and we've, we at PCI have, have talked about, you know, all of us having the equivalent of 100 energy slaves sort of working for us you know, mm-hmm. all the time so that we can live the life that we have. And that's privileged people, obviously, right? 
And he's basically channeling all that. And he's, and he's talking about this trajectory that we've been on with exponential growth of all these things. And then he's, he talks about the limits of energy efficiency and Jevons paradox, which is this idea that if you make things more efficient, people just consume more of it. Um, he literally is channeling all these things. And then he says, the end conclusion here, we live on a finite planet. The end conclusion here is that we are going to have to ration. We are going to have to ration. And it's like, oh my God, this man, you know, who's the wealthiest <laughs> human on the planet, who's built like a trillion dollar company, you know, or whatever it is, you know, right. taking over the planet um, is saying there are limits, you know? And, but then he says, but that's just totally unacceptable. You can't do that. So instead what we're going to do is we're going to go basically into space. We're going to put humanity in, in orbit, around the earth between the earth and the moon in these like space colony things right we're not going to populate we're not going to go to mars it's too far away it's too hard to do so instead we're going to put people in these like artificial you know uh kind of domes or whatever and we're going to have a trillion humans living in space you know and we're going to do that by basically harvesting the moon like this is what his vision is <laughs> after he's recognized all these limitations we have. That's his answer to it. Well, I, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, there are more people living inside the moon. Did you know that? And they, well, they're already doing of some of this work. A lot of, yeah. 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 Um, well, who was it? Was it, um, I was just listening to a podcast. Actually, I think it was Dan Cummins in one of his early podcasts. And it was about, um, who was our sixth president? Our sixth president was, uh, what was our sixth president? Um, Adams? Oh, no. No, Adams is second. He was the son of the other president. Anyway. Oh, yeah. That's uh, the other Adams. Yeah, the other Adams. Yeah. Uh, Adams, the other Adams, young Adams. Yeah. John young, Quincy. J, JQA. He actually was trying to fund a mission to the South Pole uh, because at the South Pole, he believed and he was told that there was a hollow it was a hollow earth and there was an entrance there and there were mole people living there. We can establish trade with them. These were humans. These weren't moles, but these were mole humans because they lived underground right. part of the eight levels underground. And there was just a, a huge, beautiful world in there to be traded with. This is our sixth president thinking, yeah, it's a good idea. Let's get that funded. But here's he did the not thing. get that funded, but he was pushing for it. So we laugh at that. as just totally an well, utterly insane. But guess well, what? <laughs> these other ideas that are that people take at face value people were not like in the audience of course they're all amazon probably employees you know yeah there who are pay paid to clap nobody's like sitting there guffawing in the aisles you know listening to like bezos spout this bullshit no you you yeah. don't want to counter the lizard people you know bezos is he's a lizard overlord it's clear it's, yeah they're probably it, either scared or a lizard person themselves. i think so i think so yeah. um so there's a lot of, you know, the reason why I was trying to shoehorn Thomas Friedman in there, which led to Jeff Bezos, is this idea that, you know, we were always joking around, right? Yeah. At PCI, because every day you're working on these dark, dark projections. And the gallows humor, it, it helps. I mean, how many amazing Jewish comics are out there? You know, my, all of, well, a lot of my favorites, like, um, I mean, there's so many, but Lenny Bruce, Andy Kaufman. Gene Wilder, Sarah Silverman, uh, isn't Pee Wee, wasn't Pee Wee Herman? He is alive. He's Jewish, right? Pretty yeah. sure Pee Wee Herman's Jewish. Yeah. I mean, 
then there's you. I mean, Mel Brooks. Come on, man. Ah, Mel Brooks is great. Not one of my favorites, though. Not oh, not my top. Not, my not he's not in my Lenny Bruce, Gene Wilder, Andy Kaufman circle. You know. Yeah. Um, he's great. He's great. If you want to, if you want to understand Jewish humor and appreciate Jewish humor, the 10 second scene from History of the World Part One, where he's pretending to be Moses and he is arriving to to <laughs> share. The fifteen commandments, but then he drops one of one of the tablets, right, right, and then he says instead the ten, the ten commandments. It's like that's that's probably the funniest thing I've ever seen in in film history. But maybe yeah. you got to be a Jew to, to laugh about it. Maybe I'm not, I mean, I'll, I'll laugh. I'll just it's funny. I remember it. I was six, four years old when I came out. I don't know. Oh, I watch it every year. way back just, just to laugh at that. Yeah, unseen. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. You were saying Jewish humor and, and, and were you saying <laughs> no, the idea of gallows humor, just like how, no, because you know, you, the work that you've been doing um, in your career is like heavy, heavy stuff. The Holocaust, yeah. the end of the world, you know, I mean, let's be honest, the mission of post-carbon Institute is kind of to save the world. It really is. Uh, or to save the best of what's left anyway. Yeah. Um, so you're clearly doing, your heart work, you know, you're following your passion and you have a really strong sense of justice and you're, you're fighting it. I mean, uphill battles, you know, for justice and equality and, and fuck man for, for life on earth. But as successful as you've been at marrying your passion, your personal passion with your, your work, your career, it's got to take a toll, right? You look at the science, the data, the prognoses, and it's all pretty grim if we're being honest. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it is grim. How do you detox? How do you, do you ever feel like you want to just step away from it all? So humor is a huge piece of it. And I think that, you know, one of the reasons I, I loved working with you when you were a PCI was the fact that we could laugh together. And we actually did, you know, we experimented a lot with, with using humor actually as a communications tool, you know, in, in our work as well to reach other people that way. We have a, we actually have a podcast uh, like everybody else at PCI called crazy, crazy town. town. And, and that is, is us, you know, there's three of us, me and, and, and two other folks associated with PCI who are also happen to be friends of mine. What's up, Rob? Um, What's up, Jason? Yeah. And, and it's just us kind of laughing. So we don't cry. I think that that's a huge, for me, it's a huge, uh, probably my biggest or one of my biggest tools for trying to stay sane you know, amidst all this stuff is to laugh about it. And yes, the humor can get really dark. I mean, that's kind of the only way, at least for me, you know, to, to kind of balance those things. Um, so humor is a big part of it. I also, I, uh, we were joking about me being an atheist. I, I probably would consider myself more of an agnostic. Um, but I, I do have kind of a, a, if I have a spirituality to me, it's, it's sort of a cosmological view of where humanity and even this planet sits, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things. It's mm -hmm. kind of, you know, when you step back, you know, there's a lot of suffering, a lot of, of pain and certainty and big existential questions and things like that. Yes, I, I dedicate myself to trying to minimize, but at the end of the day, it's like, I sort of also try to let go in a sense, this expectation that, you know, it, it's on my shoulders to solve all of this, you know, um, 
I went through that with this work, you know, where, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I felt like if I could just figure out the right combination, you know, to, to help humanity wake up, you know, it could s- save so much. And, and when I came to the conclusion that, you know, we're a tiny organization that that's doing its best, you know, against a lot of headwinds, we're not going to write this ship ourselves. You know, it's one, it's, there's a lot of hubris in thinking that, you know, you could do that yourself, but you know, there's so much inertia and forces in motion that we can't stop, you know, even if we had unlimited resources and we don't, we've got tiny, you know, tiny budget. And I had to sort of, I did go through this kind of like existential crisis a little bit where I was really in the dumps about this sort of thinking, what's this all for, you know, and, and considering kind of like stepping away. And then I I realized just because we can't fix this, just because we can't avoid uh, a lot of hardships to come doesn't mean that we can't somehow redirect some of this to minimize pain and suffering, to bring more beauty into the world, to, to shift it on some level. And and we do that. I mean, I got an email just the other day. It was one of the best emails I ever got from somebody who was you know, kind of a fan of PCI, just basically saying, hey, I just wanted you to know, because of you guys, I completely changed my life around. You know, I was living in D.C. I was, like, fighting against all this stuff. I moved. Now I'm in kind of rural Iowa, you know, and I'm growing my own food. And right now with the coronavirus thing, I'm riding around on my bike delivering bread to my neighbors, you know, and... And I feel really good. You was know? that Nate Higgins? <laughs> it wasn't Nate Higgins. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, what was the line that you and Richard you would talk about um, all the work that you do at Post Carbon? And, and you guys have presented to uh, world bodies, heads of state, all over the place. You know, um, data and findings. Um, but this idea of creating plans that'll be laying around when the shit yeah. hits the fan. Can, yeah. you, can you explain that a little bit? Because I yeah, I mean, that's, so that's not ours. I mean, that that's that's the shock doctrine, and okay. um, and so Naomi Klein, Naomi Klein, you know, wrote wrote a book by that title, and she she's really the one who popularized popularized this idea. And it's actually fascinating with the pandemic because I think if we need evidence that the shock doctrine idea, which I'll explain in a second, is is true, you know. Um, we, we have it in spades right now with this thing. So the shock doctrine is basically, she was talking about this sort of neoliberal economic school of thought and, and community of people who, by neoliberal, they basically wanted to free up markets, you know, get out, you know, remove government regulation and restrictions and try to create as open markets as possible, you know, and had this vision that, you know, that's going to, whatever their vision of the future that they thought was positive, I tend to see it as a very libertarian, you know, and everyone can sink or swim on their own vision. Um, but they, you know, or maybe they believe that that would just help everybody. if We just, you know, got out of the way. Um, you know, Milton Friedman was kind of the guru, the father of this movement. He was at the, the Chicago school of economics, right. uh, school of economics, at the university of Chicago. And he had this, this uh, line and I'm not, I'm going to, not get it completely right. But basically what he was saying was that it's only in moments of crises, whether those crises are real or perceived, that real change happens. And that their work, and he's talking about the work of all these neoliberals, 
you know, a lot of them were academics and in think tanks and other places, was to develop these alternative ideas, you know, and so that when crises hit, what would have, what was currently sort of politically implausible, just totally untenable ideas, will become politically inevitable because there was this crisis moment, you know, and that, um, as, as Naomi Klein, you know, described, it was a sort of the shock doctrine. We have a shock and we seize, we take advantage of these shocks to p- implement our ideas, which nobody would have taken seriously or would have been willing to do when there wasn't a crisis, you know, and they imp- actually did implement these in Chile. Um, in some cases, there have been shocks that have been manufactured in order to advance uh, policies that I find really reprehensible. But the shock doctrine could be applied in a positive way or in a negative way, depending upon what you believe in. And what we're seeing actually with the pandemic is totally that case. Take, for example, the, the thing that Andrew Yang was campaigning for the Democratic you know, nomination around, you know, universal basic income, mm-hmm. the idea that we're going to send a thousand bucks to every you know, adult American once a month, you know. Um, he didn't develop that idea. It was an idea that had been floated around and was actually being tested out in, in some cities, you know, in Europe. Shout out to the Netherlands again and Utrecht. They were doing it. And, um, and it was just kind of like this marginal idea, you know, that was sort of popular with a lot of kind of progressive types and popular actually with some Silicon Valley types, which for, I think, different reasons. Um, but he, you know, he, he brought it more out when he was campaigning on this idea, you know, he put it on debate stages and even though he was a marginal candidate, wasn't going to get the nomination. Uh, he did bring that much more, this idea much more into the the conversation, but here we have a shock, right? We've got this pandemic and now all of a sudden, you know, there's a debate happening, but you know, we might be seeing a $1,200 check, you know, sent to every, every American it may be that we find ourselves in a situation where we're doing this on a monthly basis. Suddenly, universal basic income could become policy in the span of weeks, right? Um, so we've talked a lot about that at, at Post Carbon Institute, which is sort of seeing our work as developing these alternatives and working with others who are developing those alternatives. There are a lot of people doing alternative things around food production, energy production, relocalization, mm-hmm. you know, uh, thinking about how to build community resilience, you know, reorienting culture, all these things that are, are totally marginal right now. They're, they're not in the path of the American way, you know, right in the, in the, in the, um, in, in the central path of that. But when crises hit and we know we're going to get more crises, that, of that I'm absolutely confident. Could those ideas be picked up and be the ones that are implemented? It's either going to be those or it's going to be really, really awful shit. You know, that that people want to do really regressive things like shut down borders. And, you know, uh, I mean, actually, we're seeing I would say we're probably seeing Amazon practicing shock doctrine right now, which is in a sense they're seizing. They're taking advantage of, you know, hiring 100,000 new employees. We might see local businesses never come back. They were already hard hit by Amazon and, and Main Street getting really hurt by what Amazon was doing. They could be gone for good. Oh, it's going to be really fascinating, not necessarily a good time to see the, the truly wealthy, the truly wealthy gobble up um, what's left of the, the middle, right? Yeah. The middle's gone, but you know, the, the, the sort of the, yeah. the, the lower wealthy are going to get gobbled up. You know, it's crazy to think that somebody who might in the United States have like, 
$10 million in the bank, you would think, oh my God, that's incredibly wealthy. Like, yeah, well, that goes down to what, five now with the stock market crash. They start getting weird and nervous. They're going to get bought out. Their businesses are going under. You know, The wealthy are going to get screwed in this by the, the, the truly uber wealthy and the consolidation of wealth is going to ratchet up. And no healthy, happy country has ever existed with a huge discrepancy in, uh, you know, between the rich and the poor. So uh, this is going to be one of our challenges coming out of this. You can cut this out if this is boring, but you know, right. I'll give you a little, a, a little snippet of something. So we've been having conversations with, with a group of historians that are working on a project called the Seshat Project Data. I think it's called Seshat Data Bank. And what they're doing is actually trying to collect big data from from civilizations over you know a broad range of time as, as you know far back as they can get in kind of the historical record um you know from different regions around the world so trying to collect whatever data they can get you know fatalities and births and birth records and stuff around you know grains and like you know production of things whatever they can get right and combining all this data and trying to look at common patterns that they can identify and they've they there's this theory that they have um that you know civilizations kind of go through these cycles these two to three hundred year cycles and and what happens a lot for them so they have these kind of a sort of a rise and fall in these cycles of cohesion and kind of growth and and prosperity and the thing that is common for all of them it seems uh, as to what causes them to contract and to go through kind of a, a collapse of some kind is foodies. It's foodies. I know it. Right? <laughs> it's exa- yeah. It's, it's all the hipsters. It's when people uh, really start growing mustaches. Hipster foodies. Like, I knew it. Yeah. I um, knew it. Okay. It's, um, it's, you know, I would think my bias would have been, Oh, it's all about resources. They've used up their resources. Right. right. It's, um, and if you read, a, you know, if you read uh, Jared Diamond stuff, you know, that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of what's in there. What they found actually is they call it the overproduction of the elites. Hmm. And it's, it's effectively that you get, you know, uh, you have this huge growing inequality with, within society. And then you have these elites fighting for power. And there's, there's too few spots in a sense for too many of them to fight over. And there's, there, there is this effort to consolidate power, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that basically collapses the system. Well, we're in good shape then because Bezos I think we're is right gonna give track. us, well, no, they're gonna be fighting over the moon. So right, there, there's that's the only spots. way we could solve that overproduction of elites. Spots. Let's send Let the elites, the elites go to the moon and exactly. fight over the resources there with the mole people. That's, <laughs> that, that's solved, that's solved. This, the, you know, I think you're stumbling upon a crazy town episode. Well, I will tell you, know. you that for sir for uh, for your listeners, I would say we ain't seen nothing yet. You know, um, we don't know how we're going to get through this pandemic. You know, crisis. This could really tip things in a totally different direction. I don't know that yet, but what I do feel confident about is we're going to have a lot of disruptions and discontinuities and things up in the air. And in that is a lot of scary things that could happen. Uh, there's a lot of people that could be taking advantage of that in really negative ways. It also opens up a ton of opportunity for those of us who are like, fuck this shit. You know, this is mm-hmm. not the way we, <laughs> this, this is not what we signed up for. This is not 
uh, the the vision of the future that we want for ourselves. And there are models out there for better visions of the future. And and you put together, Post Carbon Institute put together, um, you guys should check this out. It's resilience.org, it's a website. And on resilience.org, it's in the show notes, but just type it in as you're listening, um, especially if you're driving. If you're in a Tesla, yeah, that's it's cool. Great. Yeah. yeah. Um, we'll help tell with the Tesla to Resilience.org. Um, <laughs> yeah. Check out resilience.org. There are so many incredible articles, um, uh, so many rabbit holes on that website, just models you may have never thought about for, for economies, for living. Um, it's a beautiful website. And that's the end of my plug on that. Also, because it's related, I, I just I have to read this description of of your of a shares podcast, Crazy Town. Again, you can find Crazy Town online. But here here's the description of Crazy Town that I love. Ready for it? Here we go. Although climate scientists have become messengers of the apocalypse, we keep burning fossil fuel like a kid lighting firecrackers on the Fourth of July. Despite the fact that consumer-driven capitalism is beating the shit out of the biosphere, we keep pushing economic growth as a way to fix everything. And even though all of humanity has less genetic variation than the average flock of seagulls, I have to say great band there, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah, okay. We continue to abuse one another with racism, sexism, and any other ism that can be rationalized with extreme feats of mental gymnastics. If you recognize controversies and hypocrisies like these, then you know what it's like to live in crazy town. Laugh along with the share Rob and Jason, mostly so you don't cry, as they explore the back alleys, figure out how to navigate sanely, and even find an escape route every once in a while. That right there, that's the crazy town podcast. That is also the work that Asher is doing. That's Post Carbon Institute. I, I worked with Asher for a number of years out there. That's what it was like to be there. Um, and it's, it's maddening. It's also incredibly frustrating. And it also gives you hope. It makes you feel like, hey, we're doing something uh, instead of sitting on our hands. And then every now and then it feels like we just are sitting on our hands and we're not doing anything, right? Um, and that's, that's your struggle. Um, well, I feel like the luckiest man in the world and I don't, I'm like, I'm not bullshitting you. I get to work on the, what I feel like are the most important issues, you know, that we face. I, I work with really cool people. One of the best things that, that has come from this work are the people that I, I get to meet mm-hmm. who, you know, we're like, a, we're a wandering distributed tribe of people who kind of feel alone in the world in, a, in this crazy world and and they're just brilliant altruistic and often very funny people and kind-hearted and that's a huge gift to me you know and and i have uh, i live a life of meaning and purpose and i get so far get paid for it you know and um you make mad money I, I make a thing. ton of money when yeah. we were talking about the elite we were talking about a share in his family. I just, I was hoping it wouldn't yeah. come up. Yeah, no, no, no. It's but like, it's, it's, uh, you're, it's a 5013Z, C3. It's all public, man. I checked out your salary. You, know, you, you added, you added me. Yeah. <laughs> there are not enough zeros in, in, in my salary. Well, you know, you're saving the planet. It's, it's worth it. You know, oh, totally. Yeah. It's totally worth it. Um, and I, I am so, uh, I'm just grateful for the work that you do out there. And, and I miss it. I miss being part of the daily, uh, work at PCI. It's it's evolved over to Super Nice Club, which is almost a. It felt like an act of capitulation. Like you know, I I can't 
you know, like you say, you need a PhD to understand the damage done by all these PhDs, right? right. Uh, and uh, so people just resist the messaging a lot. Um, and so Super Nice Club is just, it's a much lighter tap on the shoulder than, than post-carbon. Um, and we're also not um, godless anti-capitalists. Uh, wait, you retracted your godlessness statement. I write, that's right. You said you were a... Uh, but you forgot one. I, I know. I look, did. I've been, been called it? a eugenicist, and oh right, I'm just I'm surprised that you haven't brought that up. Well, I mean, right, you're the only Jewish eugenicist, I think. <laughs> That's why it was so it slipped my mind. Yeah. Oh, those yeah, were no. the days, man. We would get called all kinds of crazy stuff because, of course, working uh, on this these interwoven crises that we all face, um, you know, population population comes up, and population is an unpopular thing to talk about, right? That 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 it is an issue. Um, and I mean, I have three, I have three kids myself, so I'm a big hypocrite. Although, although my third child, uh, his name is Ryerson and, uh, <laughs> Ryerson is named after post-carbon Institute's uh, population fellow, William Ryerson. So I feel like I, it's not quite a get out of jail free card, but at least it, I'm making Well, I think you, I mean, you chose to have Ryerson just in order to do that. Yeah. That tribute. So if you ever listen to this right, if you ever listen to this right, you were definitely a choice. Um, if anybody says you were an accident, if I've told you that before, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I'm really sorry. Yep, you, a share just, yep, you were chosen. Wasn't a... Uh, I mean, it, it was when you were there with Al Gore and, and Rex Tillerson. You, right, you, your mother is actually a robot. Jockey, <laughs> a, a robot camel, camel jockey. <laughs> I'm sorry, buddy, if you're hearing this now. Um, but you're the first and only of your kind. Yeah, it's special. So, yeah. wow, this is going sideways. So, I want to get to the super nice club challenge. Did you did you read up on that part? I sent you the yeah. on that. Yeah. yeah. All right. I mean, I love this part of the podcast because this is where you get to issue a super nice challenge to listeners. Uh, something they can do that that helps them get the the niceness bar a little closer to 10% nicer. So what do you got? Well, and maybe other people have come up with this idea, you know, before, but, and this is not original to me, but I just loved it. Um, yeah, it's fine. And, and while we're all practicing social isolation, right? We're, we're cooped up. There are many people out there. Oh, the isolation are, bucket challenge. Is that what you're going to say? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we got to no, do that after this is done recording. We'll figure that one out. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, the uh, there are many people out there who are really scared to go out, you know, and um, and are alone. You know, think about elderly who are on their own right now. Mm -hmm. um, so here's the challenge: walk around in your neighborhood safely. You know, when you when you have an opportunity to go outside, um, if you got kids, you can recruit your kids to do this. Uh, make art. Write notes, hmm. uh, drop them off for people. If you you know you don't feel comfortable, or you think that they are not going to feel comfortable, you know, getting something from you, mm -hmm. uh, put it up in your own window so when they're walking around, they, they could see it. You know, leave messages for each other. I like that. I like that. I like the. I've seen a couple um, window art messages. You know, as people are communicating to each other through their windows. Um, I think that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, and just just really, uh, you know, reach out to you know, make a phone call, call somebody you would have not called 
for a while, you know, or maybe never called before. If you have a neighbor that, you know, um, that you're, you're worrying about, you know, want to make sure that they, that they know they're not alone, give them a call, you know, do something, just reach out and, and communicate to others that, that we're all in this together, even as we're practicing, practice, practicing social isolation. All right, everybody. So that's the challenge. You're going to go out, you're going to make some communication art, make some art in your neighborhood that, that expresses some connection and, and connectivity to your neighbors. Call them on the phone, even prank calls. It's a, a call is a call, right? So yeah, prank exactly. calls are okay. Prank calls are great. Yeah, idea. prank call. I yeah. have Jeff's, Rex's, and their, I have both of their numbers. Oh, it's on my old Blackberry. That was a long time ago. Anyway, we can Do you call remember when Donald prank. Trump put out, who, who was it? It was Senator. Oh, Lindsey Graham. He like <laughs> announced his cell phone number. Oh, right. Yeah. So <laughs> the challenge is to call Lindsey Graham. <laughs> Wish Lindsey well. Is Lindsey Graham still alive? Who knows? Yeah, I think maybe he was swimming with, uh, with what's his name, uh, in the Senate pool. Rand Paul. Yeah, Rand Paul. Right. Yeah. Well, maybe. I don't know. Um, so if you're up to accepting this challenge, and I hope you are, tell us how it went for you. Uh, you can post proof in your socials and tag us at, at Super Nice Club. You can also tag at Post Carbon Institute if you'd like to do that. Uh, does Resilience have, a, have an Instagram? Must no Instagram, no. Uh, uh, well, um, what can the super nice what, anything the members of the super nice club can do for you? Uh, you're set financially, a, okay? So, uh, we're not gonna say, yeah, right. um, well, give crazy town a listen if, yeah, uh, if you like that. One. Um, and then if you want to dive deeper, uh, we have an actually, uh, we created an online course, we, a lot of people have time on their hands, right. Now, I think Netflix is on my list because because um, people are overloading that system. So if Netflix isn't working and you're looking for for something to watch, you know, check out um, a four hour online course we developed called Think Resilience. Um, you could just Google Think Resilience, or you could just go to resilience.org/education. Um, Todd actually helped uh, uh, produce that, um, and we're going to be making it available for free. We've been We've been charging 20 bucks a pop for, for people to do it as a kind of a self-directed course online. We're going to um, release it for free so that people can, can watch it um, right now. And uh, so if, if you have a capacity, you can donate some money so other, we can help share it with other people. Um, and if you don't, you know, do it for free. Again, it's not, it's not free yet, but it will be soon. And uh, that will give you kind of a broader orientation of the, the stuff that we're dealing with. Obviously, it was made pre-pandemic, but there's a lot of things that apply to the pandemic and lessons from the pandemic that I think will ring some serious bells for you. And that's you with senior fellow Richard Heinberg. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yep. yeah. All right. And then how we wrap things up on this is typically the most awkward part. And so it's great. Is it like is, a uh, hug? Or? It's a hug. Yeah. It's, uh, but we're 600, 800 miles apart. So it's a safe one. Uh, is by giving you a chance to ask a question. Do you have a question for me to share? God, let me think about it. Um, you always puzzle me (laughs) and make me ask questions. (laughs) Um, yeah. How are you, how are you dealing with not being with your kids all the time right now? I don't, I don't know what your situation is right now, um, with your kids, but how are you holding up with that? It's gonna be hard. Well, Rye, I just power down. 
you know, he's half robot. Right. He's, 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 he's yeah. powered down. Uh, I just actually had Rye and Archer down here uh, in LA for the last 11 days. Um, so that was wonderful. Uh-huh. And Justice, my oldest, 17 now, power pitcher. His season got shut down, so he's super bummed. Um, but, uh, after he made the front page of the local paper, any scouts out there, look up justice, brilliant Healdsburg high school. Uh, he's got a one point something ERA, but only three games pitched, uh, (laughs) season got canceled. (laughs) So it hasn't been, you know, I've had them most of the time. They just got dropped off and it's kind of a weird thing. Like I'm driving from LA back up to Northern California. So I've just kind of considered it a long hallway, right? from my mm-hmm. house to their house and they, their house has been on total lockdown. They've been on total lockdown. And then I don't know when I'm going to see them next. You know, this yeah. thing is changing moment by moment, day by day. By the time this podcast hits um, next week, it could be completely, I doubt guys, gals, men, women, that we're going to be open for business. <laughs> I really, I hope we're not, but uh, I'm dealing with it just by checking on it every day. And they seem to be pretty, okay with things they're they don't really know what's going on yet mm-hmm. you know um and they're not certainly feeling any sorts of panic and they get to spend yeah. a lot more time on screens than they usually do a lot more time you know uh because right. the the beaches the trails everything's closed off now so i'm i'm kind of fascinated by all of this uh and a lot of it is due to the work that i did when i was with you at pci um just watching seeing how people respond. It's a fascinating system-wide test right now of, it's like a, it's kind of dark to say, like it's a precursor of collapse. You know, I'm not a collapse, Nick, Um, but it is definitely a test. And I'm seeing how everyone around me from my family to the the larger circles uh, are responding. Yeah. Well, I hope you get to it. I mean, it's, it's, it is just definitely a moment to, to reprioritize and not let this, your boys have always been your biggest priority, but you know, um, having family close is super important in, especially in uncertain times. And as a, as a parent, it's gotta be yeah. hard not to be able to like give them a hug every day, you know? So I, I'm, I'm feeling for you, man. I hope you get to see them really soon. Well, we've got, I appreciate that. I really do. You know, we have video, um, video chat and, uh, the boys, their, their mom is fantastic with keeping everybody in touch. You know, we, we get on uh, and get on well. So that's, uh, um, well, this technology is, is, is doing us in, you know, planetarily, but isn't that a weird hypocrisy? Like, you know, on one hand, the technology is crushing us on the other hand, it's, it's like, uh, it's what what would be, it, it's kind of like, um, I can't even think of it. I was going to say somebody who beats you up, who's also putting bandages on you, but that's awkward and clumsy and I'm just going to let it ride. Um, it's an abusive loving relationship. That's so, better. Yeah. That I like that. It's an abusive loving relationship that we all have with technology. Uh, so now you're a Luddite too. God, I yeah. No wonder post carbon Institute is having a hard time. Well, you know, traction. I'm a Luddite. I mean, here we are, <laughs> you know, using computer technology and the internet to talk to each other. <laughs> Man, thank you for spending time. Everybody, check out uh, Share's life work at uh, postcarbon.org, O R G, also resilience.org. 
Arg. 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 The Orleans. Arg. And Crazy Town Podcast. These are three great things to add to your add your world. Thanks, man. Thanks for being thanks. on. Yeah, thanks totally for making appreciate me 10% you. Percent nicer. You've uh, you've definitely done that for me. So, oh, that's yeah. great to hear. And we made it all the way through this podcast, um, just like I asked you to. You know, not mentioning our idea for a uh, porta potty. Right. Yeah, P-O-D-D-Y. we're not going to get no. Sh- stop. <sighs> Sorry. Uh, all right, I'm out. <laughs> okay, so the porta potty. I just got to get into that real quick. That was my idea to convert a porta potty, you know, outdoor toilet, into a podcast booth. Get it? Porta potty, not potty, potty. It'd be easy to soundproof, nice and contained. And anyway, that's what that was about. So, how about our super nice takeaways from this conversation? You're not buying the porta potty thing. I think it's cool. You could paint it all silver or whatever and put that. I could put like a nice work thing on the outside. No? All right. Anyway, super nice takeaways from this conversation. Number one, the Dutch invented the fork. Who knew? I didn't know that. I didn't, I was doing research for this episode and I found that out. They did. It's literally the only thing the Dutch have ever invented. And even then it was because they found plans left by Nikola Tesla after his visit to Rotterdam in 1677. Yeah, that means that Tesla had a time machine. But, I mean, everybody knows that he invented the time machine and, and the fork, well, with some help from the Dutch. So, number two, a share is a god and vegan-hating communist. Eh, the guy is going to save the world had to have some flaws. Now we know. Could be worse. And number three, hard work. Hard work, like trying to alert the world to impending doom or chronicling the lives of... Uh, those who have endured doomsday, literally, can be super challenging, super depressing. And the cure to that is humor, laughs, unfiltered, wild, abandoned jokes. Here's a tip. Here's a tip about jokes. It's never too soon. If you have to ask too soon, somebody's already beaten you to that punchline. I mean, I'm making jokes about Joe Biden's corpse, and he's still alive. It's never too soon. Maybe that's the fourth takeaway. The third would be hard work. Fourth would be never too soon. Fifth would be don't tell bad jokes about Joe Biden. I don't know. Anyway, there you have it, folks. A super nice conversation with just a terrific guy, Asher Miller, and his super nice work at Post Carbon Institute. Don't forget to subscribe to Nice Work wherever you get your podcast. And definitely, please, please leave a review. We'd love to hear from you. Message us on Facebook, Instagram, plain old email, Todd, T-O-D, just one D, at superniceclub.com, or call me directly via the nice line at 707-500-1580. And if you're not a member of the Super Nice Club, all you have to do is follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Ah, there's a reminder. Steve Lambert webinar, 6 p.m. All right, Steve. If you want to represent with some super sweet Super sweet, super nice street fashion. Super nice, sweet street fashion. Ah, I did it. Head over to superniceclub.com. Use discount code SUPERNICEASHER, A-S-H-E-R, for 15% off. That's one five. Stay nice, everyone. Stay super nice.
So what? Big deal. 